1: Right at home.
2: Go to PrettyLitter.com and use code ACAST for twenty percent off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi and welcome to Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Naz Modirzadeh.
3: And I'm Richard Atwood. Today we're going to talk about Colombia and protests shaking the country. Since about a month ago, tens of thousands of demonstrators, maybe more, have gathered in cities, towns, and villages in anger at the government. The trigger for the protests was a controversial tax reform introduced by President Iván Duque's government. People saw it as too tough on a middle class struggling to get by. The government withdrew the measure, but demonstrations have continued gathering strength.
2: Discontent is boiling over in Colombia. At least 24 people are dead after eight days of protest.
3: Uh, There are parts of the city that look like they just have been bombed.
2: Tonight... It's the worst political crisis Colombia has experienced since the 2016 peace deal between the government and the FARC rebel group. Demonstrators have blocked roads, paralyzing key routes and bringing hundreds of businesses to the point of bankruptcy. The security forces have at times cracked down. More than 60 people have died, many at the hands of police. Many strikers are young people. But wide sectors of the population have joined the protests, including union members, students, and middle and lower classes in the cities, as well as smallhold farmers, cocoa growers, and ethnic minorities in the countryside.
0: The thing is, uh, we've seen in many cities vandalism, low intensity urban terrorism, and attacks to infrastructure, to the public transportation systems. And obviously, we have to ensure law and order. There are cases. Where inside the peaceful protest, people get infiltrated with the idea of generating riots.
3: That was President Duque. He's often criticized protesters' violence. Still, there have been national and local negotiations between officials and protesters, aiming to bring protests to an end. The National Strike Committee, an ad hoc collection of more than 20 unions and civil society groups is negotiating on behalf of the protesters. On the 6th of June, the committee announced it would withdraw from talks with the Duque government, throwing a question mark over the future of negotiations. To talk about all this, we're delighted to welcome back on Beth Dickinson, Crisis Group's Colombia expert, and Renata Segura, Crisis Group's Deputy Latin America Director. Thanks to you both for joining.
0: Very happy to join you. Very glad to be here.
3: Perhaps, uh, Renato, we could start with you and, and just a, a quick take on what's happening as we speak across the country.
0: Well, as you well said, Richard, at the introduction, it's been five weeks now that the entire country has seen thousands of people mobilized on the streets. Um, in Colombia, it's been known as as the El Paro. So that technically translates as a strike, although technically it's not purely a strike. It's essentially thousands of people marching, doing seatings. There's been blockades of roads. That's perhaps one of the biggest things that has been happening through the last five weeks. The strike began as a protest against the tax proposal reform, but it really soon became a channel for an indignation. And I think you can almost say a pain that has been growing in Colombia for many, many years, even though there's a thousand different uh, demands and grievances, and, and they vary very widely depending on the, where the protests are happening. There really is this one unifying complaint against a socioeconomic system that really has endemically reproduced uh, inequality. Just to give you a little uh, data point that, that represents what's happening on the streets. Um, A study that was recently done by the OECD on income uh, mobility showed that it would take 11 generations for someone born into a low-income family in Colombia to earn an average wage. So these are the people that are on the street, young people that see very little future, that are really despondent and fairly angry at the perception that the elites of the country are really fully uninterested in changing an overall system that has these marginalized populations in this situation with really no, no exit. And uh, in the protests throughout the country, there's been this sign that like, you recurrently see um, these, these young people holding that says, we have lost everything, even our fear. So the sense is that people have nothing left to lose. And so they're out there exposing their lives, going through very difficult circumstances. Particularly, public transport has been affected in the major cities, and um, the blockades have become sort of the real crucial uh, debate point in the country. Cities have been, uh, the, the main roads going into the cities have been blocked, and that means that in certain cases there's been uh, shortages of food or medicines, and sometimes ambulances haven't been allowed in. So the question right now is how to continue the strike and the demonstrations without necessarily doing the blockades because this is the thing that really has public opinion very divided about. Most people uh support the strikes and their demands, but they are not okay with the idea of the blo- of blocking the the roads. So, Beth, Renata does a great job of
2: giving us uh, some of the context and some of the reasons behind the protest. Can you tell us a bit about the protesters' demands?
1: Thank you. Well, as Renata mentioned, it it really is a diversity of grievances that have really come to the the surface. Every case and every protest and every individual blockade, it manifests differently. But I think there is, as she mentioned, one way I've heard it explained is this shared anguish from the society. We group the demands in sort of two buckets. First one really is this uh, whole category of economic inequality and frustration with this exclusionary system, the fact that one can only rise through the ranks of the system, the education system, or also the labor market if one has connections or wealth or the right family name or from the right neighborhood. In urban areas, that manifests in asking for things like a basic income, lower tuition for universities and more places in public universities, more seats available at the table or in rural areas. And I want to highlight here that although the urban protests have been the most visible, this is very much a national phenomenon. Rural areas are really quite focused on the economic frustrations that have followed from the peace agreement, promises that were made of land redistribution, land reform, uh, agricultural market reform, uh, better opportunities to sell agricultural products, none of which has really manifested. So that's one sort of bucket of grievances are these economic concerns. And I think that's really the base of where these protests started. However, the government's response to the protests has generated a second bucket of grievances. And in many ways, I think that this is what has entrenched the protest and made it more enduring and more nationally spread. And what has happened specifically during that security response is a really overzealous security crackdown that has involved clear police abuses, cases of police officers shooting directly into protesters using tear gas at short range, using it directly into people's homes, in contexts that are very dense urban settings. The latest count from the government ombudsman is 61 protesters who have been killed. Um, And I think that response... has really awakened a well of frustration about the relationship between the security forces in Colombia and the communities that they're meant to protect.
0: And Renata, can you
2: tell us a bit about the role you think COVID is playing in this story?
0: Yes, um, absolutely. And I think we can say with certainty that COVID made a situation that was bad. Unbearable. It's very much at the core of why people are on the street today. COVID was significantly bad for Colombian economic terms. The economy of the country contracted 16% last year. So it was devastating throughout the country for everybody, but it was particularly bad for the urban poor and for the middle classes. Um, More than half of the workers in Colombia are part of the informal economy. So the lockdowns that were imposed throughout last year meant that people literally didn't have enough food to eat because they have to go out and, find daily work in order to be able to feed. But besides this urban poor that we would have imagined would be the most affected by COVID, I think um, COVID also made painfully clear the fragility of the many socioeconomic advances of the recent years that I think Colombians, we had felt very good about it, thinking that there was a good chunk of people in the country that had come into the middle class. But when you look at the numbers and how this works, it's clear that this was a very, very fragile middle class. In fact, Colombians that make $10 a day are considered middle class by the official statistics in the country. So you can imagine that this is a barely there situation in which COVID comes, people uh, lose income for a couple of months or one person in the household ends up losing their job and really they are thrown back into poverty. And so that's why this tax reform, which had some elements which were progressive and some economists were really defending it, brought people to the street uh, in such a way because it did things as for example, adding a value added tax to food. Uh, this is an anecdote, but I think it's actually very representative of of what is behind a lot of this protest. When the tax reform was being discussed, the the finance minister was at a radio show uh, with a very well known journalist, and he was asked, "How much does a uh, dozen egg cost? How much do you pay for twelve eggs?" And he not only had no idea. But he came out with a number that was ridiculously small. Nobody, um, you know, would ever be able to find 12 eggs for that price. And I think that that became a symbol of for these tax reforms that I made by rich people that have no idea how much food costs, but they don't understand that for many people on the street, this is the difference between eating or going hungry. Um, and finally, obviously COVID has made evident again uh, the life and death implications of inequality, right? Uh, people in the lower income uh, had much higher chances of contracting the virus because of their occupation. Wealthy people obviously have access to much better medical care. And when the country was just seeing vaccines trickling very slowly, uh, they were seeing the elites flying into Miami to get their shots.
3: So, Beth, you've just been in Cali, which is sort of the centre of gravity, or was the initial centre of gravity of the protests. Can you sort of give us a sense of what it's like, what's going on?
1: I think the way that the protest has evolved in Cali has been very interesting. It was the site of the largest demonstrations from the beginning. And since that moment, you had this sort of fracturing and atomization of the protest into individual blockades. Now, what do we mean when we say blockades? I want to describe two different parts of blockades because I think it's important to understand there are two kinds of blockades in Cali today. There are blockades that are intended to limit mobility from one part of the city to another. We can think of these as sort of political blockades, right? I will put pressure on the economy by blocking this main road. Uh, and it's done by, you know, burning tires or putting stones or other sort of uh, shrapnel or other bits of um, material in the street. Sometimes it's done with a rope and you'll have young um, young protesters usually guarding this blockade. That's one type of blockade. And that's clearly a mechanism to Pressure the government, But there's another kind of blockade that is actually more common in Cali and that I think is a very interesting manifestation of the sort of feeling that protesters are trying to express. And that kind of blockade is where a neighborhood is literally just cordoned off from the rest of Cali. So they, they sort of seal off their neighborhood so that the police can't come inside, but, but no one else can either. And I tried for a very long time to understand, you know, why is this the form of protest that feels appropriate in Cali? And I think the the closest that I can come to understanding it is that this is a type of seeking autonomy in a system that has taken all the agency away from many of these communities. These are communities that feel that they don't have control over their own um, economic lives. They don't have control over their own security. Um, In many of these areas, they describe a very conflictual relationship with police in which there's widespread accusations of police corruption, police shaking down people for bribes. And so cordoning off the neighborhood is actually sort of reclaiming their own control I think that these these blockades are also interesting because they've evolved into sort of an ecosystem of, of social organization and protest, not to romanticize it at all, because it's also a very alarming sort of almost militarization of the structure. You have leaders of the blockades, you have uh, shifts in which individual different individuals will man the post, you have people in the front line who are meant to protect against the riot squad, then you, behind them you have sort of more civilian protesters, you have a communal kitchen. Um, so these have become Almost a, a form of social organization and a new reclaiming of neighborhoods that I think could well outlast um, some of these protests. Now, from authorities' perspective, this is also a little bit alarming because essentially they've lost whole parts of the city in terms of governability.
3: So, Beth, maybe you've talked about the blockades and these sort of almost militant leaders of, of protests. And, you know, it's something that the government has pointed to what it calls kind of extreme vandalism, attacks on police stations, on government property, torching of buses, looting in Cali in and other cities, tyre burning. But, you know, h- how common is that? And how do most protesters, how do they view the use of violence as a means to, to sort of achieve what they want?
1: So I think this is also a very important question in understanding the way that the protests have evolved. There have been instances of very pronounced vandalism in the protests in Cali. Generally, the way that the protests have unfolded throughout the day is that during the daylight hours, you'll have a very peaceful protest. And then into the evening, you'll have clashes with the riot squad. And then this is usually during these moments of chaos, let's say, when some of the looting and vandalism takes place. But I want to distinguish between different types of vandalism, and I don't say that to justify any of them, but rather to explain where they're coming from and why they're happening. So the first type of vandalism is, I think, spontaneous. It happens out of the genuine frustration um, that I think particularly young people feel in this moment. And so this is just sort of small acts of vandalism, like graffiti on the walls or breaking windows. I think a second category of vandalism, though, is political vandalism. If you go to some of the more entrenched blockades in Cali, something very remarkable that you notice is that the local merchants and the local uh, store owners have not been vandalized. Their windows are untouched. They don't have any graffiti on their walls. You ask the community, They say that there are actually rules in the blockade that you don't touch the local community because the reason for the blockade is to defend the community. However, if you go down the street and you see a a national chain that's right next to one of these stores, it will be burned out. It will be looted. They're not allowed to bring trucks to refuel, uh, restock their shelves. And I think a final form of vandalism, and this is, of course, the most alarming one, is the criminal vandalism. There have been acts of vandalism in Cali that are very clearly organized and orchestrated with some thought behind them. So this is, for example, um, the burning of gas stations in which all of the equipment has been pulled out from the ground with large machinery and been taken away. That's clearly not a spontaneous act, and it clearly was, was sort of premeditated. I think another interesting manifestation of this is... Repeatedly, I think in Colombia, when you have large scale protests, one of the first things that always gets burned or destroyed is the public transport system. Why would that be in someone's interest to destroy a public transport system? Well, one reason might be because the informal transport system is an extremely lucrative system that is often linked to criminal networks. So if you destroy the public transport system, then people have to rely on this informality and the informality of transport, the informality of other public services. And you sort of shift the market uh, back to other economic interests that are are sort of unregulated in this unregulated gray space. So Renata,
2: can you tell us a bit about the view of Those parts of the population who are not participating in the protests about the protesters, recognizing that this is always a problematic question to ask, what do the people think? But to the extent that you have a sense of the perspective on the protest movements from within the population, it would be great to hear more about that.
0: I mean, I think the country is fairly divided. And as the protests go on and on, it is even more and more polarized. Um, at the beginning of the protests, uh, polls were saying around 70% of Colombians supported the, the protests and the strike. So a pretty high number. And I think there has been a moment of reckoning, particularly with public intellectuals, some politicians, et cetera, that have sort of said, yes, this is a question that we need to tackle, the question of inequality. This is something we have to understand. However, as we were saying, the blockades have really turned people off from the idea of the protest continuing uh, for an extensive period of time, right, when people are not able to buy food, more importantly, when people are not able to get to their work. There really is, I think, an exhaustion that is coming. um, But every day there are people outside. uh, And I think most of the population understand that these are really legitimate uh, concerns that, that the strikers are putting on the national agenda. That said, there is a chunk of the population, which is more conservative, who have been saying this is all along, all criminals, this is all paid, there's nothing legitimate about this, and who are really adamant that the strike needs to end. That said, I would think that the great majority of the people think that the dialogue is the only way forward and most Colombians are really opposed to the idea of ending the strike by the use of force. I think the great majority of the people would be unhappy with that kind of route and really support the idea of a dialogue.
3: So let's come to the dialogue in a moment, but could I just ask, some top officials have also said that maybe Venezuelan president uh, Nicolás Maduro... Uh, Maybe he's had a hand in stoking up some of the protests. Uh, Should we make anything of this?
0: Yeah, I mean, the, the government's response has been really sort of confusing in terms of communication lines, you know, because they have acknowledged there are legitimate concerns and, right, there is a dialogue going on with the, with the National Strike Committee, and then there's tons of little dialogues happening in the cities and the departments more at the local level. So there is on the one hand that kind of like, yes, yes, we know that this is something that is legitimate, but simultaneously and really much louder, There's been these theories in which the president himself, but many other high-level functionaries, have come out on public media, on TV. This is not something that is being hush-hushed, saying this is all a conspiracy organized by and then you have your uh, choice. It might be Gustavo Petro, who is the head of the leftist uh, political party and sort of the, the the presidential candidate that has more support at the moment, in uh, with the help of maybe Maduro, maybe the Cubans, maybe the Nicaraguans, and also together with criminal groups. And this is all something that was planned from the beginning uh, in order to make Colombia look bad, in order to make Duque resign, in order to bring a change by force uh, to the country. Um, so there is definitely a sector within that party that is completely close to the idea of any dialogue and that would, I think, oppose any reform that has to go through Congress if it comes out of a negotiation with the strikers.
3: And so let's talk a little bit about reforms and negotiations. We, we spoke earlier about the fact that the government had shelved the tax proposal for now. As you said, it's cracked down quite heavily in some cases with the security forces on protesters, often involving a lot of violence. But it's also opened up negotiations, both nationally and there's been sort of negotiations between local authorities and protesters first of all you know how are those negotiations going and secondly is there any sign that the government is going to be able to or is prepared to make an effort to meet some of the protesters grievances which as you say are are sort of more widely held within society
0: the breaking of the negotiations in the last few days was definitely a very bad sign Um, It's a sign that both the National Strike Committee, but also the government is not finding the urgency that they need to really uh, come to an agreement anytime soon. Uh, the government really wants to end with the blockades and the National Strike Committee is obviously not willing to promise that because that is the strategy that they have. That is their tool. Right. And if they start manif- you know, doing marches on the sidewalks, there's no saying that anybody going to pay any attention to them. Um, on the most uh, serious um, demands that have been met, so obviously the tax reform was removed from Congress. There was going to be a reform to the health system that also wasn't even presented. And the government has announced that uh, for the lower income uh, students in public universities, there's going to be no tuition. So that was given as um, sort of as a hint uh, towards the young people, but that really answers the needs of a very small fraction of those who are protesting, which are the ones who have access to public education, right? Uh, who have been admitted into university. There's a lot of people that are not even at that place. My big worry about this is that we're putting little band-aids on what really is a river of grievances that in order to be really responded to properly would need a systemic transformation of the system, that I am not getting any hint that the elites, the political class, the wealthier people in the country are willing to engage with.
3: And Renata, Beth, what about police reform?
0: So because of this police brutality that uh, we were talking about before, the president uh, did respond this weekend with a set of proposals on changing the police, which has been one of the main issues, not only on this strike but in discussion in the country for a very long time. And the proposal hasn't been seen full flesh. It was just a series of tweets in which they were announcing uh, some changes. Some of them definitely welcome like more accountability and more thorough investigations. But there's two problems Um that we see with this initial proposal. The first one is that it doesn't tackle the two main issues that have been identified as the problem. One, the police in Colombia is part of the Ministry of Defense. So they respond to the military hierarchy when they're making those decisions. So local authorities don't have full control of what the police does in their cities. So there's been quite a call To move the police from the Minister of Defense to the Ministry of Justice or have a civilian head for sure. And that is not in the proposals that are being changed. And the second thing, which sort of speaks a little bit to the tone of how the government has been doing these things, it was completely unconsulted. The government just came out with this proposal and put it on the table. So they clearly don't want to signal that they are actually ceding to what the protesters are requiring. Uh, but by doing this, it really is a proposal that is not seen as very legitimate. If I can just add, I think the, the crucial question here that has emerged from
1: the protest is, are the security forces under civilian control? Technically, they are. But in an acting capacity, what we've seen from the protests is that there are problems in the chain of command. That sometimes if a, a sort of local official, like a mayor, asks the police not to use a certain tactic, that same police will ask their command chain in, in, in the Ministry of Defense, in Bogota, up the chain, should I use this or not? And they'll listen to that chain of command rather than the civilian authorities. So I think really the, the crucial change that protesters are calling for here is we need a security force that responds to civilian leadership and although that might exist legally in the system de facto today on the ground is not the case and I think that it has exacerbated the situation of police abuses.
2: So Beth maybe you can tell us in light of the a deep nature of the protests here in light of the serious uh, economic and inequality issues that the protesters are, are speaking to with these actions. What do you see as the main risks facing the country right now?
1: I think the stakes of the current moment are really hard to understate. Since the peace accord, there's been an opportunity to consolidate peace in Colombia. That's still very much a work in progress, but the opportunity is there. And I think what we risk at this moment is setting all of that back. I think there are several forms of violence that have emerged um, around the protests that alarm us. Of course, one of them is the police abuse which has been very clear. And I think really this moment calls for asking hard questions about what does it mean to have a security force in a country that is at peace and a police force that is charged with protecting its citizens rather than viewing them as an enemy. But there are even more alarming risks of escalation beyond that. We've seen cases in which armed civilians have joined police, uh, standing side by side in some cases, in firing directly at protesters. This calls to mind a legacy of self-defense and paramilitary organization in in Colombia that is very dangerous. These community members, some of them have publicly come forward after being filmed shooting at protesters to explain themselves as defending their communities, defending their economic interests. That's exactly how the paramilitaries started in the 1990s and early 2000s, that that later turned into sort of a Hydra-headed criminal and armed organization in Colombia that we're still fighting the legacy of. There's another parallel risk, I think, of escalating violence in which armed and criminal groups will inevitably take advantage of this situation. And I think this is particularly pronounced in the countryside. Let's imagine a roadblock in the countryside. If you block a major road in an area of the country that already has very little state institutional presence, um, that is under the influence of an armed group, um, if you block that road for some period of time and you sort of leave the population only under the control of that armed group, what will happen? The armed group will consolidate their social influence, will implement um, sort of more rules and and, and regulations on the population, will uh, consolidate their their control of trafficking corridors. And if this continues until the next presidential election, which is uh, 343 days from today when this is being recorded, that's a very long time in order to just sit and wait for these risks to grow more and more pronounced.
3: So, Renata, could I ask you just for a moment to put your regional hat on? There's there's many other countries in Latin America where, again, the pandemic has played into grievances that were there before, whether it's the sort of monstrous inequality, whether it's the, the difficulties the middle class are facing, you know, whether it's the fact that many people are sort of eking out a living and really struggling to get by. Covid has played into all these. Why haven't more countries seen protests like those in Colombia?
0: Well, not to be dramatic, but I think uh, we can say we haven't seen them yet. Right. We have to remember that 2019 saw massive protests in Ecuador, in Bolivia, in Peru, in Chile, in Venezuela, in Colombia. And many of these protests were really put to rest because COVID forced them to. I mean, Chile is probably the clearest example of a protest that actually had an institutional channel, and they are now convening a new constituent assembly with a very progressive set of people. So that might have been resolved. But in many other of these countries, definitely this is all brewing. I think that protests really are triggered by very local, specific acts like the tax reform in Colombia. And so I think the governments in the region should really be wise to look at Colombia to see what not to do. Do not push the burden of the fiscal crisis that many of these government um, are facing right now in the population because there is very, very big chances that this can be happening elsewhere in the region.
3: Renata, Beth, thank you both so much for coming on.
0: Thanks very much. Thank you for having us.
3: Thank you. So Naz, what uh, what did you take away from that?
2: Richard, I thought there were so many interesting points in our discussion with colleagues. But one thing that stuck out to me was Renata's comment about what happens when you have such a prolonged armed conflict and now you have an agreement, you have a peace deal. And policing is imbued with warfare and with concepts and tactics that emanate from from those who are fighting in a prolonged armed conflict. And I think one of the trickiest questions in terms of how to reform police conduct is How do you sort of make a break from the type of activity that was uh, approved and seen as indeed necessary in order to fight against organized armed groups and sort of make a transition into regular day-to-day policing?
3: Yeah, uh, very much so. And as Renata said, how you have this shift of mentality within the police to viewing their main responsibility as protecting the population rather than viewing part of the population as the problem. The other thing that that struck me relates to the impact of COVID, and it's something that you know Crisis Group has written about quite a bit. And you know, in some ways, it's striking how little the pandemic has affected international peace and security. You know, it hasn't, if you look across some of the world's major war zones, it hasn't really caused warring parties to, to stop fighting. And conversely, it hasn't really disrupted any peace process. But I think, as this conversation made very clear, there's plenty of reason to be worried about its longer term destabilizing impact. I mean, Colombia, its middle income country, traditionally regarded as quite a strong democracy, is a, is a really good example. It's not just about COVID, as we heard But the pandemic has played into anger that's taken people onto the streets. It's aggravated things that were upsetting people before, whether it's the inequality, whether it's the shrinking space for the middle class, whether it's declining living conditions, fewer opportunities for young people. The pandemic has also pushed millions more people into poverty. And on top of that, you now have the inequality in the way vaccines are being distributed, both inequality between countries and inequality within them. And I think it's easy to see, as Renata said at the end, how similar dynamics play out elsewhere.
2: Richard, I think you wrote about this in your president's take on COVID and sort of what can we take stock of now and what can we say about the impacts of COVID in the longer term? And in a sense, I think Renata and Beth were conveying that the pandemic and its impact over the past year May have pushed people to the point that their sense is we don't have anything to fear or to lose anymore. And so, long standing economic inequities, long standing sense that elites in the country simply don't care about many segments of the population, now even worse and even more unequal as a result of the impact of the pandemic. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Naz Modirzadeh.
3: And I'm Richard Atwood. You can find more of our work on our website, crisisgroup.org, or follow us on Twitter, at crisisgroup.
2: Thank you very much to our producers, Maeve Francis and Ida Holly nambi
3: And thank you especially to our listeners. Please do leave us a question, a comment, a rating or review, and we hope you'll join us again next week.